Uh, I was supposed to deliver this uh, scholarly paper at the American Sociological Association meeting in New York. And uh, it was a very controversial paper, and I was really nervous about it. It was on the top floor of the Americana Hotel. There was a ballroom up there, and I'm on the elevator with my graduate assistant, Janie. She's in the other corner, and uh, the thing's packed. And she looks at me and she says, Doctor, you've got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? She said, your fly is open. I looked down, and it was open. Have you ever had that problem? You know, I mean, be honest. You look down, and there it is. You're open. <laughs> and I was in the back of the elevator, so there was no great problem. I, you know, when you're on an elevator, everybody turns and faces the door and looks at the numbers. So nobody was noticing as I reached down and deftly zipped up, and that should have ended the problem. And it would have ended the problem if it was not for the fact that the lady in front of me had a scarf hanging down her back. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't have to tell you what happened, right? I, when I zipped up, the scarf got caught in the zipper. And that would have been no great problem had the scarf been hanging loosely around the lady's neck. Because then, when the lady walked forward, I would have had a scarf hanging from my fly, and while that would not have been too swift, it, it would have been no great tragedy. Not my good fortune. When she started walking forward, two things happened. First of all, she started to choke. And secondly, I found myself strangely pulled in her direction. And I yelled at her, yo, lady! And I got her back into the corner of the elevator, and, and, and my, my graduate assistant, Janie, is in the other corner. She's not laughing. She is doubled up. She is dying. And I'm trying to get this scarf out of my zipper, and this woman is yelling at me, you're a pervert. You're a pervert. You're a dirty. So that's the funniest thing that ever happened to me. So I just thought I'd, you know, be, you know, okay. Now that I got that over with, I, uh, I, I get down to the serious stuff. I grew up in a, in a home that was Christian, and, and I went to church, and I never quite f could figure out what it was all about, because uh, I, I remember when I was 12 years old, sitting on the front row of church, and the minister up there, really in high gear, yelling, are you ready to die? I'm 12 years old. <laughs> and then he said, you don't think you're going to die. You could be looking at me. You could be leaving this building, walking across the street, and get hit by a truck. Then where would you be? Jeez, it didn't get me to be religious. It just made me very careful about crossing streets. I mean, I was very careful about that. And then he also had the second threat. You don't have to die. A trumpet could sound. And the Lord could return. And where would you be? Jeez, it scared the daylights out of me. Next time I went to the movies, I was scared. I was afraid that halfway through the flick, the trumpet was going to sound. And the Lord would return. And throughout eternity, I'd be grabbing people and shaking them and saying, do you know how that movie ended? Do you have any idea how that ended? So I, I didn't quite get it. I knew a lot about Jesus. I had been told that he, I, that he was God in a human body, that, that the God who created the universe had somehow taken on a human body. I, I knew that because I remember in about, about 10 years old in Sunday school, uh, the teacher telling the boys and girls a very simple story. He said, uh, imagine a man who loved ants. And out behind his house, he had an anthill. 
And every day he would go out to the anthill and he would yell at the ants, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. But the ants never got the message because he was a man and they were ants and ants and men do not communicate with each other very well. But I didn't tell you one thing more. This man had magical powers and could change himself into anything. If he really wanted to talk to the ants, if he really wanted to communicate with the ants, what do you think he would do, boys and girls? And I remember as a little kid saying, along with all the other kids in the Sunday school class, if he could change himself into anything and he wanted to communicate with ants, well, he'd change himself into an ant. Exactly, she said. Exactly. Only by becoming one of them could he really communicate how much he loved them. That's the way it is with God. God loves us, but we never got the message until one day he changed himself into one of us in order to communicate with us. And that's who Jesus was. Jesus was God taking on human form so he could communicate with us. Wow, that was pretty good. I kind of got it then. But still, it didn't really cut the mustard with me. I was still trying to figure out what it was about. And then they said, you, you not only have to believe this, you have to really, you really have to trust in Jesus. And I didn't know what that meant. And then one day, somebody told me the story that really made it clear. And I, I just got the full story recently, because I only had part of the story before. But in 1898, Blondin, the greatest tightrope walker of all time, strung a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And before 10,000 people on the Canadian side, 10,000 people on the American side, he inched his way across the Niagara Falls on that tightrope. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Niagara Falls. It's frightening just to look at the thing. I can't imagine. It's about a mile across. And so here's this guy on a tightrope making his way from one side to the other. When he got to the American side, 10,000 people started yelling, Blondin, Blondin, yelling his name. He quieted the crowd. He said, I'm going back across the tightrope, but this time I'm going to carry somebody on my shoulders. Do you believe I can do that? And again, the crowd yelled, we believe, we believe, we believe. He said, you believe that I can carry somebody on my shoulders back across to the Canadian side. Which of you will be that person? The crowd fell silent. Out of the crowd stepped one man. I just found out his name recently, Harry Caldwell. He climbed on Blondin's shoulders. He was the one guy who didn't just say I believe, but was willing to bet his life on Blondin. Believed in Blondin so much he was willing to trust his life into his hands. Re reporting on the story years later, Harry Caldwell said when we got about halfway over, the wind began to blow and the, and the tightrope began to sway. It was then that Blondin yelled at, at me. He yelled, Harry, Harry, you are no longer Harry. You are Blondin. You have to be an extension of me. When I move, you move. Wherever I go, you go. If I sway, you sway. You must be an extension of me or we will both go down. That's pretty graphic for me. Being a Christian isn't just believing with your head. It's turning your life over and saying, I want you, Jesus, to be in control of my life. I want to be an extension of you in the world. I want to live out your will in the world. I, I, I don't not only believe in my head, but I'm ready to make a commitment of my life. I, I wanted to uh, do that. As I grew up, I couldn't quite figure out what that meant.
to commit your life to Jesus. But then something dawned on me. It was in reading the Gospels. I thought that becoming a Christian was getting ready to go to heaven or to die or waiting for the trumpet to sound, as I said originally. It isn't. When Jesus spoke, when he preached, he called people to be his disciples. There's a big difference between being a believer and being a disciple. Believers got it in their head. Disciples say, I'm going to live out this life. This life. And for me, that life entailed two things. First of all, calling people to really come to know Jesus. This Jesus who died on the cross for their sins. This Jesus who was resurrected. This Jesus, which we declare is alive here and now. To not only give your life over, believe in him, but to give your life over to him. And if you do, this is what happens. You become somebody through whom he begins to change the world that it is, that is into the world that ought to be. Now, the reason why I took the opportunity to come here and jumped at it was because I really do believe this. Listen to this carefully. You are the generation that's got to do it. I got bad news. I'm a sociologist by trade, and I assure you that unless you, unless this generation, specifically you in this room, rise up to the challenge, America doesn't have a future. If you don't know that, you haven't been reading the news, you haven't been keeping up with things. We are trillions of dollars in debt. The whole system is collapsing. Banks are closing down. A million families had their houses foreclosed last year. The whole system is falling apart. Unemployment is close to 10%. And they say it's even going to get worse. What's even more is with Libya and the Middle East blowing apart, they're expecting the cost of oil to go up to such a point that gasoline is going to be $5 a gallon by the end of the year. The whole system is in trouble. Beyond that, our schools aren't doing that well. You're lucky to be here in this school where they have standards and all of that. The public school system is in trouble. 25 years ago, we were number one in the world. Today, we are dead last of the 17 industrialized nations. Things are bad. America doesn't seem to have any bearings, doesn't know where it's going. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that you are supposed to become disciples of Christ, which means through you, he's supposed to not only change America, but change the world into the kind of world that God wants for it to be. That's why I teach at Eastern University. It's a Christian university up there just outside of Philadelphia. And we are big on getting kids, kids like you, to radically commit themselves to living out the will of God in this world, to change the world from what it is into what it ought to be. Let me tell you about some of our grads. There's one guy, Brian Stevenson, only All-American ball player we ever, ever had. He graduated top of the class, African-American. He went from Eastern University undergrad to Harvard Law School, graduated top of the class at Harvard Law. He, he could have been making a half a million dollars a year on Wall Street. He was given those kinds of options. Instead, he's living in a small flat in Montgomery, Alabama. Peggy and I send money down to keep his thing going. 
Because every day, Brian Stevenson gets up and goes down to the jailhouse to de defend the people on death row. You say, doesn't he believe in capital punishment? How could anybody believe in capital punishment and call himself a Christian when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be receiving mercy. And Jesus did say that. You say, well, if somebody murders somebody, don't you think they ought to put them to death? I mean, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, 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 said Jesus. It's not that way. That's the way it is in the Old Testament, but I give you a new commandment. It's no longer an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's this, to forgive, to overcome evil with good, to not return evil for evil. Only God giveth life. Only God has the right to take it away. That kind of radical stuff. I said, Brian, don't you believe in capital punishment? He said, even if you did, you couldn't believe in capital punishment in the United States where there's two kinds of justice. One kind of justice for rich people and another kind of justice for poor people. And if you don't know that, you're not keeping up with things. People go to the electric chair or the gas chamber, he said, not simply because they are guilty. They might be guilty, they may not be guilty. That's not the issue. They go to the electric chair for one reason and one reason alone. Because when they have their day in court, they have nobody really good to speak for them, to defend them, to voice their side of the case. They have no one to be a voice for them when they have their day in court. And then he smiled at me and he said, except in Montgomery, Alabama. Because in Montgomery, Alabama, Doc, I defend the poor. I defend the poor, Doc. I'm their voice. And then he said, and Doc, I'm good. I'm really, really good. And I thought to myself, Brian, you don't know how good you are. You are somebody who not only believes in Jesus, but you have committed your life and said, here I am. Here's all my gifts, all my abilities. Lord, do something incredibly well and good through me. I want to be used, not, not just to make money, but I want, to, I want to do something that when I hang my sneakers up at the end, I can hear the Lord say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. To be a Christian is to do whatever Jesus would do if Jesus was in your place with your skills, your abilities, your gifts. And all of you have different abilities and different gifts. But each of you is called. Called not only to believe in Jesus, but to say, Christ Jesus, I want you in my life to use me to make me an instrument through which you can change the world that is into the world that ought to be. When Christ is in you, when Christ is a living presence in you, you become very sensitive to the needs of others, to those who hurt. I'm walking down Chestnut Street one day in Philadelphia, and uh, this homeless guy's walking towards me. He's dirty and filthy. He's cruddy as could be. He's got this beard that's greasy, and he's holding in his hand a cup of McDonald's coffee, and it's smudged around the edge. He's yelling and screaming at somebody who isn't even there. He spots me, and he yells, Yo, mister, you want some of my coffee? Jeez, I didn't really want any of his coffee, not from that filthy cup. But I knew the right thing to do was to affirm his generosity. So I said, okay. And I took the cup, and I took a sip, and I gave it back to him. 
I said, you're getting, you're getting pretty generous. I mean, you're getting pretty generous giving away your coffee to people you don't even know. I'm a stranger to you. You're giving away your coffee to strangers. What's gotten into you today? And I said, well, the coffee today was especially delicious. And I figure if God gives you something good, you ought to share it with people. I thought, oh, no. This sucker has set me up. It's going to cost me $10. I said, you want something from me in return, don't you? He said, yeah. I want a hug. I was hoping for the $10. <laughs> he put his arms around me, and I put my arms around him, and then I realized something. He wasn't going to let me go. He was holding me in a bear hug. People are passing on the streets. They're staring at me. I'm embarrassed. I'm really embarrassed. He won't let me go. And, and, and then little by little, my embarrassment turned to awe and reverence. I could hear Jesus saying to me, as he says in the 25th chapter of Matthew, I was hungry, did you feed me? I was naked, did you clothe me? I was sick, did you care for me? I was that bum you met on Chestnut Street. Did you hug me? For inasmuch as you do it unto the least of these, you do it to me. Inasmuch as you fail to do it to the least of these, you fail to do it unto me. St. Francis of Assisi, any of you who are Catholic should know about St. Francis, but all of us should know about him. He's a great, was the great Christian of the 10th century. St. Francis of Assisi said, Poor people and needy people, hurting people, are sacramental. What he meant by that is that somehow when you meet these people and you look into their eyes, you have this eerie sensation that Jesus Christ is staring back at you. That's what it means to have Christ in you. If Christ is really in you, you become sensitive that every hurting person is somehow an incarnation of Jesus. When I was in high school, when I was where you are, and that was a long time ago, there was a kid in our high school, West Philadelphia High School, tough, tough, tough inner city public school. There was a kid in our high school who was gay. And man, we picked on him. We bullied him. We humiliated that kid at every turn. On Fridays, when all the other kids would go into the showers to clean up after phys ed, he would never go in, he was afraid to. And when he did take his turn, we waited with our wet towels, and as he came out, we would whip the towels and sting his little body. I wasn't there the Friday that they grabbed little Roger, skinny, ugly little Roger, and shoved him into the corner, doubled up in a fetal position in the corner of the shower. He was screaming and yelling and crying and as five guys urinated all over him. I wasn't there when that happened. He went home. That night at 10 o'clock, they say he went to bed. And they estimate it was about 2 o'clock in the morning that he got up and went to the basement of his house. And he hung himself. And I knew I wasn't a Christian. I knew I wasn't a Christian. Because if Christ was in me, I would have sensed something sacred about Roger, I, I would have been his friend. 
I would have stood up for him. When they came to pick on him, I would have said, let him alone. Leave him alone. He's my friend. But I was afraid to be Roger's friend. Because in a tough, tough inner city school, where you're trying to be popular, where you, you know, you're on the ball team and you're running for president of the student body, you don't want to be friends with a kid like Roger, because if you are, it's not long before they're saying things about you. I wish I could go back and be Roger's friend. I wish I could go back and put my arm around him and say, lay off of my friend, he's my friend. Because I know that one day, someday, when I stand before the judgment seat of God, he would say, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Blessed are ye when they reviled you and persecuted you and said all kinds of terrible things about you at West Philadelphia High because you love the wrong people. I am not advocating any kind of sexual lifestyle that is contrary to the Scriptures. I am just saying that a lifestyle that is in accord with Scripture is to love those who hurt and to care for those whose hearts are broken because when you sense Christ in the other person, you know that his heart is being broken by the things that break that kid's heart. I head up a missionary organization. We have a lot of work in Haiti. And that's a great place to go. Not these days, because it's getting worse and worse and worse, even since the earthquake. I, uh, I remember taking a group of my students from Eastern University, where I teach. I took them with me down to Haiti. The priest got us up at 6 o'clock in the morning. And he said, follow me. And we walked with him through a place called City Soleil, the worst slum on the face of the earth. According to Mother Teresa, who's seen a lot of them, that's the worst. They have these little paths uh, between shacks, and there's trash and garbage and excrement, the stench. I mean, you've seen pictures of these kinds of slum villages, but the stench, you cannot imagine the stench. Six in the morning, misty, rainy. Out of these shacks came mothers holding in their hands the corpses of children who had died during the night. We picked up the corpses of 17 dead children that morning. There was a flu epidemic. When flu hits Orangewood Height, people miss school, they get sick. But when kids are extremely malnourished as they are in City Soleil, they don't get sick, they die. And there were 17 dead kids that morning. And we made our way to the edge of City Soleil, and the men had gone out ahead and dug a ditch. And into that ditch, side by side, we laid the corpses of 17 dead kids. I stood on one side of the ditch with my friends and, my, and the priest. On the other side were the screaming mothers screaming and wailing and crying their eyes out and waving their fist at heaven, angry yet God. And standing among them was Josh, the power forward on our university basketball team, six foot six, muscle, violent under the 
backboards. He didn't look violent that day. His fists were clenched at his side. His chin was trembling. Tears were running down his cheek. And I knew, I knew he would never be the same because his heart had been broken by the things that break the heart of Jesus. To be a Christian isn't just to believe with your head. It's to commit your life to say, I don't know anything that I can do right now, but I know this, that the rest of my life is going to be given over to Jesus. And I'm going to say, Jesus, I, I know that stuff about you dying on the cross and resurrecting, but I want you here and now because I believe you to be here and now. I want you to invade me, to penetrate, to fill my being, to make me alive, to make me alive. That's what Christ wants to do. He wants to make us alive. And you don't have to go to the third world to go to the third world. I don't know how many of you are graduating seniors this year, but you might want to go to my website and check out my website. We have these organizations like Urban Promise, one in Toronto, one in Philadelphia, one in Camden. We're in actually in 11 different cities across the United States, but check me out. And Maybe you need to take a year off before you go to college. That's exactly what they do in the United Kingdom. We get a lot of kids from uh, Wales, from uh, England, from Scotland, because generally when they come out of high school, uh, they take what they call a gap year, and they use that year doing something that will get their heads screwed on right. Generally among the poor and the needy and the oppressed, generally in places like Haiti or places like the slums of Philadelphia or the slums of Toronto, Canada, the slums of Wilmington, Delaware, Atlanta, Georgia, they, they come and they, and now we're even working in Miami. We just started in Miami. Working with the beaten down people. You do that for a year and your whole perspective on life will change. I mean, one kid was dragged into my office, shoved into a chair. His father started yelling at me. He said, you got him into all of this, Campolo. You got him into all those red letters in the Bible. Uh, you know, the words of Jesus that are highlighted in red? You got him into all those red letters. He said, don't get me wrong. He, he's out there on the streets. He's taking care of ne'er-do-wells, the, the dumbest kids you ever saw, uh, pimps and whores and who knows what else is out there. He got a good education. Look what he's doing with himself. He said, look, don't get me wrong. I don't mind being Christian up to a point. What an interesting statement. Up to a point. Isn't that what we all are here? We're all willing to be Christian. What? Up to a point. But being a Christian isn't just believing in Jesus. It's inviting this resurrected Christ to take possession of you and say, I'm going beyond that point. I don't know how far I'm going to go today, but I'm, I'm going to move on from where I've been. And I am little by little going to become the person that God can use to do something incredible in this world. Right now at Eastern, we, we have a program where we're training young men and young women to go to third world countries and even into the inner city to start small businesses and cottage industries that people can own and run themselves. Most people who get degrees want to get and work for General Motors or General Electric or some big company. We say this, when you come to Eastern, if you're going to major in business, why not consider going to the poorest of the poor 
and start small businesses in cottage industries that indigenous people can own and run themselves. I don't know whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. There's only one way to end poverty, and that's to create jobs. There's no other way. And we've been raising up men and women who have gone out into the third world to create jobs. Over a 15-year period, we've been feeding them into two organizations primarily, World Vision and Opportunity International. Those two organizations together, over the last 15 years, have created in the third world three and a half million jobs. Three and a half million jobs. Now, when you create a job for a family, it's not just one person that eats, it's the whole family that eats. So you've got to take three and a half million and multiply it by five and see how many people are delivered from poverty, not for a day, not for a week, not for a year, but for the rest of their lives. The first business we ever started was in the Dominican Republic. It was in a slum called Guachapita. Women came together and they started making, making sandals to be sold on the world market. Sandals made of worn out, discarded automobile tires. We gathered the boys and girls together in Guachapita and said, every time you bring us a worn out, discarded automobile tire, we'll give you 50 cents. Gang, it wasn't long before we had every worn out, discarded automobile tire in Santa Domingo. Then we started getting a lot of new automobile tires. <laughs> we had to change our modus operandi, to say the least. Starting small businesses, cottage industries that people can own and run themselves. And those young men and women that are doing this, when they hang up their sneakers in the end, they're not going to be millionaires. But they can look back and see thousands of people who are living with dignity, who are out of poverty, who are doing something great with their lives because they made a difference. They made a difference. I got to tell you, I got a call from a friend of mine. He died unexpectedly two years ago. He called me on the phone and he said, I got this idea. We're going to build houses for poor people. I thought, that's great. The kingdom of God is described in the 65th chapter of Isaiah. Look it up. It's a place where people have decent jobs and people have houses to live in, where children don't die in infancy. I thought, this is great. How are you going to do it? Well, we're going to raise money and buy building supplies. And, and we're going to build the houses and sell the houses to poor families, no down payment, long-term mortgages, and here's the catch, no interest on the mortgage. Most poor people, when they buy a house, 90% of what they pay each month doesn't pay off the principal, it just pays interest. No interest because the Bible says you don't charge interest of the poor. Great, I said. You didn't answer one problem. And the problem is this. Who's going who's to build these houses? He said, we're going to get church people to do it. I said, church people like me? He said, yeah. I said, right. 27 years later, Habitat for Humanity, which my friend created. Habitat for Humanity has created 300,000 houses for poor families across this country. And in the next five years, they will build another 300,000. It's growing exponentially. Don't say we can't make a difference. You know, sometimes people come and tell you how the world's getting worse and worse and worse. America's in bad shape. The world's not doing so badly. I mean, Christianity in this country is on the decline. People are leaving churches. 
in Korea. They're joining churches at a rate that staggers the imagination. There is one church over there. You think you have mega churches here? There's a mega church over there that has a million members. In Africa, they add 50,000 new members to the church in Africa every single week. In, in Latin America, the church is exploding. I know one Assemblies of God church in, in, in downtown Buenos Aires that plants a new church with 250 members every other week. In addition to that, get this. 25 years ago, 80% of the population of this planet was illiterate. Today, it's down to 20%. And it's people like you who have made the difference. We have a literacy program with just a couple of guys running it in Haiti. And they're, they're able to get about 10,000 adults literate every year and about 3,000 children literate every year. Cutting into literacy, 10 years ago, it was one out of six people who had no access to clean drinking water. Today, it's one out of 12. We've improved the situation 100% because people like you said, we're going to stand up and we're going to make a difference. But we need changes right here in the United States. Let me tell you about a teacher in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Her name's, her name's Jean Thompson. It was the first day of school, and she said what teachers always say the first day of school. Boys and girls, I love you all the same. Sometimes teachers lie. She didn't like Teddy Stollard. You would not like him either. He was a singularly unattractive kid. He sat slouched in the seat. He never paid attention. When she spoke to him, he answered in monosyllables of, yeah, no. His clothes were always musty, his hair messed. He never bathed often enough to get rid of an ugly odor. When she marked Teddy's paper, she always got a perverse delight out of putting X's next to his wrong answers. And when she put the F at the top of the paper, she always did it with a flare. Voom, voom, voom. She should have known better. Teachers have records. She had records. First grade. Teddy is a good boy. He shows promise in his work and in his attitude. But poor home situation. Second grade. Teddy is a good boy, a good student, but he is too serious for a second grader. His mother is terminally ill. His father shows no interest. Third up on the bracelet. Taking some perfume out of the almost empty bottle, she put it on her wrist and held it up and said, isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely? Taking the cue from the other kids and the teacher, everybody agreed. At the end of the day, when all the other children had left, Teddy lingered behind and he, he came over to the desk and he said softly, Miss Thompson? Miss Thompson, all day today, you smelled just like my mother used to smell. That's our bracelet you're wearing. It looks very nice on you. I'm really glad you like my presence. She turned, she left. He turned and he left, and she got down on her knees. 
she put her head in the chair and cried and cried and cried and asked God to forgive her. And the next day, the next day, when the kids came into that classroom, they didn't come into a classroom. They came into an area that had been transformed into the kingdom of God. For as the prayer goes, the kingdom of God is wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And she did God's will in that classroom. She transformed it into an outpost of the kingdom of God. She reached out to the kids who were having trouble, especially to Teddy. She tutored him, encouraged him. By the end of the school year, Teddy had caught up with a lot of kids. He was even ahead of some. The Stollard family moved away. And she didn't hear from Teddy for a long, long time. And then a note came out of nowhere. Dear Ms. Thompson, I'm graduating from high school. I wanted you to be the first to know. It was a postcard, signed, Love, Teddy, Stollard. Four years later, there was another note. Dear Ms. Thompson, I'm second in my class. The university has not been easy, but I really liked it. I'm graduating on Saturday. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Ms. Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore J. Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm going to be married on Saturday, the 27th of July to be exact. Could you come? I would want you to sit where my mother would have sat. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. And she went. And she sat where the mother would have sat. She deserved to be there. She was somebody who didn't just believe in Jesus, but who at a particular point invited Christ to come in and transform her into somebody who would wipe the tears away from a beaten up little boy. Christ wants to invade you and perhaps to eliminate hunger in a third world country or to go and teach in an inner city school. But to do something significant with your life. I had one of my students with me in Haiti. We went to this clinic that we run down there and there were like a couple of hundred kids lined up with swelled bellies and rust colored hair from malnutrition. That's what happens with that black hair. They took care of about 50 or 60 and had to turn the rest away. And some of them were so sick we knew they'd never be able to make it back. And Charlie said, Doc, I'm going to come back. I'm going to be a doctor in this place. You wait and see. You wait and see, Doc. I'm going to come back here and I'm going to make a difference with my life. I'm going to rescue people from death. Well, I ran into Charlie in New York. Bumped into him on the street. To his credit, Charlie did become a doctor. But do you know what he's doing? Cosmetic surgery. Not the kind that makes sense. You put a broken face together after an automobile accident or something like that 
that makes sense. That kind of plastic surgery makes, no. He's doing the kind of cosmetic surgery that caters to a sexist culture that evaluates women by the shape of their breasts. You know what he's doing. And he was telling me he went to church. And he was tithing. And I had to yell at him, not good enough, Charlie. Not good enough. Stop. You're making me sick, Charlie. You had a vision. You had a dream. You were going to do something incredible with your life. And look at you, Charlie. You traded in the dream. You traded in the vision for what? For what? So you could have a jacuzzi and a Porsche. Is that what it's about, Charlie? Dress it up any way you want, Charlie. You're a sellout. You say, that's cool. Oh, before you go too long, how many of you will be sellouts in the end? Sellouts in the end. I really am calling upon you to not simply buy into a system that has already brainwashed you, because they have already brainwashed you. They said, stay in school and get a good education. And if you ask why, I know what they told you. If you get a good education, you get a good job. And if you get a good job, you'll make a lot of money. And if you make a lot of money, you'll be able to buy a lot of stuff. That is not what it's about, people. If you're a Christian, you get a good education. Not so you can get the credentials to get the job to buy the stuff. You get an education in order to equip yourself to make your life count even more for Christ and the kingdom. Changing this world in little ways and in big ways into the kind of world that God wants for it to be. Well, that's the end of my rip. Being a Christian is believing in Christ, believing that this man, Jesus, was the incarnation of God, that when he went to the cross, all the sins for which you and I should be punished, he took upon himself. Yes, it's believing that. But more than that, it's surrendering your life to him in the here and the now, inviting him to possess you, to take care of you, and to use you to do whatever he wants you to do through you, to go where he wants you to go, to do what he wants you to do, to be the person that God wants you to be. That's what it means to be a disciple, not just a believer. And that's what I'm calling you to do today. Now, I could give an invitation and sing 50 verses of Just As I Am, but I find it generally the kids come down the aisle just as they are and go out just as they were. <laughs> I will ask you to do this. I'll ask you to take some time, perhaps tonight, just as you're going to bed, and just ask a very simple question. What am I about? What's my life going to be about? Am I ready to not only believe in Jesus, but invite Christ to be a living presence in me and to use me to impact this nation, to impact this state, to impact this town, to impact this school? Am, am I ready to become an instrument through whom God can do his work in the world? As I wrap it up, let me tell you, it's, you've done well to listen to me today. I'm an old guy, and generally young people don't listen to old guys, so thank you. But let me say this.
you're about as good a group of young people in high school that I've come across. You've been, you've been a good group to talk to, considering you're predominantly white. You're not all white, but most of you are white. And white people are hard. I mean, it's tough, especially white Presbyterians. Jeez. I belong to an African-American church, a black church in West Philadelphia. It's the church we joined because it was the Baptist church that was nearest to where we lived. And it's fun to preach there. You know how you're doing, good or bad. One time I was preaching in my church, and, and, and it was going nowhere. I could feel it was going nowhere. I was dying on my feet. And I knew how I was doing because some lady in the back yelled, help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus. And I, I knew it wasn't going well. Likewise, when you're really doing well in my church, the deacons sit right up front where you people are. They sit right up there. And whenever you say something good, the deacons yell, preach, preach, brother, preach. I would have done much better today if I had my deacons here instead of you people. And the women in my church, when you're saying something good, they put one hand in the air and they go, well, just like that. Well, doesn't sound like much. You get 100 women going, well, your hormones bubble. And the men in my church, when you have, as my pastor said, gotten down, they let you know. They, they, they start yelling, keep going, baby, keep going. They'll stand up and point at you and go, keep going, man, keep going, keep going. Jeez. You don't get that in a white church. <laughs> Certainly not in a white Presbyterian church. They don't stand up and yell, keep going, keep going. In a white Presbyterian church, they yell, stop, stop. <laughs> Once a year in my church, we have this preach-off. You don't even know what they are. You get about seven, eight preachers, six preachers, and you preach back to back. It goes on for hours to see who's best. You never say that. You say it's for the glory of God, but we know what it's about. <laughs> and it was my turn. I don't want to brag, gang. I do not want to brag. I was good. I mean, I knew I was good because the deacons were yelling, preach, and women were yelling, well, putting their hands in the air, well, well, and, and men were standing up and going, keep going, baby, keep going, and I feed on that stuff. The more they did it, the better I got. The better I got, the more they did it. I kept getting better and better and better. Only preachers will understand what I'm about to say. I got so good, I wanted to take notes on me. <laughs> and when I finished, that place exploded. They were shouting and cheering and clapping, and I sat down. My pastor, he hit my knee. He said, you did all right. I said, you're next, pastor. You're going to be able to top that? He said, son, sit back. Because the old man, he's going to do you in. <laughs> I didn't think he could do me in. Not that day. But that sucker got up. And for the next hour, he did me in. With one line over and over again. It's not going to sound like much, but you should have been there. He kept on saying, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. Like I said, it doesn't sound like much, but you weren't there. It's Friday. It's Friday, and my Jesus was dead on a cross. But that's because it was only Friday. 
Friday. Sunday's coming. Somebody yelled, keep going, keep going, preacher. That's all he needed, man. He took off. Friday, Friday, people have said, as things have been, so they shall be. You can't change anything in this world. It's only Friday. <laughs> Sunday's coming. People are yelling, keep going, preach. Well, Friday. Friday is saying, ordinary folks like us, we cannot impact things. We cannot change things. We cannot make it. They don't know it's only Friday. <laughs> Sunday's coming. See, now I thought I'd get something from this crowd by now. <laughs> we we got to de-honketize Orangewood High School. I will give you one more shot, just one more. Friday, and they're saying a bunch of high school kids are not the kind of people who will be anything but selfish. They're not going to give their lives to change the world, but I'm here to tell you the good news. That wasn't bad for a hunky. That wasn't bad at all. He kept on going like that. Friday, but he came to the end. He just yelled at the top of his lungs, Friday! Without hesitation, we all yelled back, Sunday's coming. And that's the good news, people. If you adopt the challenge, if you surrender to the Christ who is alive and waiting to invade your life, the world will change. And the world will get the good news it's waiting to hear. America will get the good news it needs to hear. And the good news is this. Are you ready? Whoa, that was weak. Wow. Oh, wow, that was great. Let me try it again. Are you ready? The good news is it's Friday, but... Thank you.